Okay, we're going to read the whole of chapter 28 this morning. Matthew. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went to the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this uh, comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Maybe see it. Good morning. Would you pray with me as we begin our time studying God's word this morning? Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father, we see in your word that you alone are God, that there is none like you. And Father, we, this morning, as we prepare our hearts to read, hear your word, Father, I pray we'd be reminded that you are King of kings, that you are Lord of lords that you are mighty, that you reign supreme above all things, that you're always at work, even when we may not be able to see visible evidence. Your sovereign hand controls all things, and nothing happens apart from your view. Father, we praise your name and thank you for this glorious gospel that we've been speaking of these past several weeks. May the words, Father, I pray this morning, may the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. And pray that this commission that you have placed before us, Father, I pray that it would become real to us, ring true to us in our spirits this day. Show us from your word what it means to make disciples of all the nations. It is our desire as your people to walk in obedience to what you have commanded. And so with the sword of the Spirit as our guide and with the power of the Holy Spirit as our source of strength, Father, I pray we would be boldly about your work of making disciples, trusting that you will continue to accomplish your purposes through your church. So we thank you, Father, for your loving kindness. And we ask just now that you'd open the word to us. 
Give us ears to hear what the Spirit has to say to this body of believers here at Hope in Christ Church. And I pray this in the name of the one in whom you have granted all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we have been making our way through this series on the gospel markers. We're week seven of eight. And we've been talking about the problem that we have, sin problem. We talked about the solution. We talked about our connection, our union with Christ. We talked about our fellowship with God the Father through Jesus Christ, our fellowship with one another. We talked about the power source that's needed in order to be able not only to combat sin, but to walk this life, this gospel, to live this gospel out. The power source necessary, and that's the Holy Spirit. And then last week, talked about the context in which we get to do all of this. It's the context of the church he's given to us to be able to live out this gospel. Today, after hearing about the church, it's important that we understand and follow up from a teaching on the church. What then is the church to be about? I believe this is a a natural segue from speaking about the church. And we're going to talk about the commission. The commission, making disciples of all the nations. That's the commission. A very important, significant commission given to us. As we think about this commission, it's probably a good thing to ask the question, what is a commission? We know that this is, many of us, uh, we know this is called the Great Commission text in the scripture. But what is a commission? Some simple definitions or handles may be helpful here. An authorization or command to act in a prescribed manner or to perform prescribed acts could be deemed a charge, if you will. A commission being an authority to act for or act in behalf of or in place of another. A commission being a task or a matter that's entrusted to one as an agent of another. What then makes this a great commission? In what sense is this commission truly great? Let me give you a couple, couple things that come to mind as we think about great, the great commission. It's great in the sense, in the terms of its weight and its priority. You see, making disciples is the primary work that he's given to his church to carry out. So it's weighty. It ought to be weighty. It's priority with God. It's great in terms of its content. This commission is gospel-oriented and therefore has the power to save. It's great because of the one who delivers it. The psalmist says his greatness is unsearchable and he is greatly to be praised. But it's great also in the sense that because of the privilege that's been given to us in Christ We are acting as ambassadors for Christ in this and are under obligation to steward the responsibility well for the Lord's sake. The text before us this morning is perhaps one of the most well-known texts in the entire New Testament, if not the Bible as a whole. Apart from John 3.16, this may be top two, top three well-known scriptures in the biblical text. And yet the more I read it, the more convinced I am that the church has abandoned her post in this. The commissioning statement spoken by Jesus has been given 
lip service on many occasions and relegated to nothing more than an intellectual artifact. Yeah, I know about it. Church, this commission comes to you this morning from, we, we sang about this earlier. The commission comes to you this morning from the King of Kings. I hope and pray you will receive the commission coming from the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And because of that, we should receive, especially receive, these words with great care and attention. This is the King's Commission. What we speak of here in Matthew 28 is top-level priority for the church of Jesus Christ. It's not a program, nor is it intended to be a spiritual checklist item to accomplish at some point in your Christian journey. This commission was given during a period of uncertainty. The commission comes from the king after his resurrection, before his ascension. Before Jesus goes back to be with the Father, he charges his followers with a great commission. It's to consume their days for the glory of God. Church, does it do that for you? Has it consumed your days? Have your days been spent and lived out for the glory of God? Jesus as king is significant in Matthew's gospel. That's the summary distinctive of Matthew's gospel. In 28 chapters, Matthew presents Jesus Christ as king. He's the newborn king upon arrival. He delivers a message fit for his kingdom and calls his followers to live as subjects of the king. That's Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. It's a message from the king talking to his subjects about what it means to live in his kingdom. And all throughout Matthew's gospel, you see, he's not only the king of the Jews, but king of all creation, church. This king cannot be thwarted. Death has no hold on this king. And just recently, in fact, in the context, the king has been raised from the grave. The tomb is empty and the king is about to make himself known to his disciples at the mountain in Galilee. That's where verse 16 picks up. His disciples are journeying to Galilee. This journey serves as the precursor leading up to the Great Commission. So verse 16, I want us to see this faith journey to see the king. There's a faith journey, I believe, that's going on. The faith journey to see the king. Look at verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. Now here we need to ask some observation questions of the text. Why 11 disciples? Thought there were 12, some of you might be saying. Okay, context, important. Let's, let's make sure we have context. Judas, just a chapter or two ago, Judas has hanged himself. In Acts chapter 1, we're going to see Peter stand up, right? Before the Holy Spirit comes, P Peter's going to stand and he's going to go back to Scripture, talk about the importance of having a replacement for Judas. Matthias is going to be that replacement. Matthias hasn't yet replaced him. There are 11 disciples in the place right now. 
And so the 11 disciples are going to Galilee. Here's another question to ask of the text. Why are they journeying at this time to go to the mountain of Galilee? Chris read the text this morning. And in the text this morning, there are two clues. There are two pieces of information that are very helpful in, this, in answering this question. Why are they going to Galilee? If we just go backwards from where we're at in our text, we see that in verse 10, the women, as they're leaving the tomb to go tell the brethren, Jesus encounters them. And he says in verse 10 of Matthew 28, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go where? To Galilee. And there they will what? See me. If you go backwards, the women there are at the tomb. Remember the angel shows up. And the angel in Matthew 28, verse 7, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So this angel who came down on the tomb on that resurrection day announces the news to the women. Not only that Jesus is risen, not only to come inside and see for yourself he's not here. Not only to go and tell the disciples that he's risen, but he reminds them of where they can see Jesus. Church, there's a wonderful principle here. We have to at least acknowledge the principle. Are you pointing out to other people today where they might be able to see Jesus, how they can find Jesus, or are you a hindrance to them seeing Jesus today? Whatever circle it may be, it may be in your household, it may be in your workplace, but this news is going before them, going where they can see Jesus. If we go backwards in the text, look at chapter 26. Let me give you one more piece of information, one more clue. Text helps us identify other text in that same passage. Look at Matthew 26, 31 and 32. This is before Jesus has gone to the cross, church. Jesus says to them, after they've had their Lord's Supper, their final supper, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Look at verse 32. But after I have been raised. After what? After I've been raised. Matthew 28, context. He's been raised. Jesus here says, after I've been raised, I will go before you to where? Galilee. Church, I want to help you see from the scripture. It's, it's, it's helpful to know when, when it says they're going to Galilee. Ask questions of the text. The Bible oftentimes answers the questions that we're asking. And here it does it very well on three different occasions in a very short period of time. So this mountain in Galilee is a mountain Jesus himself had appointed on his own authority. This was to be the meeting place. They were going to see him at the mountain in Galilee. It's important we also understand they are in the area of Jerusalem. Christ was crucified just outside the city. And so from the area of Jerusalem to Galilee, we're talking about 65, 70 miles, give or take. Walking distance would have taken perhaps a couple days. The disciples went away into Galilee. The idea that they journeyed into Galilee. They journeyed to this mountain for what purpose? To see Jesus. You know, in many ways, I envision this journey as a faith journey. As they're walking along, I wonder what kind of conversation they had. They had a conversation, I'm sure, or many conversations along this journey. You see, they had heard the reports from the women that Jesus was alive. And they had no doubt heard the reports that had been circulating that Jesus' body was missing. According to Matthew 28, 13, I found this interesting in the context. That the soldiers themselves, right? They went into the city and reported to the chief priests all these things that had happened. 
the soldiers were given large sums of money. And they were told, in case anyone asked about a missing body, here's the story you need to recite. His disciples came at night and stole away the body while we slept. And isn't it interesting? I was thinking about the timing of this, the timing of the journey the disciples are making, and the timing of the story of the guards as they go into the city. Because verse 11 says, while they were going. So the women are going to tell the disciples to to go to, go to Galilee. While that's going on, the guards are going to the city and reporting the story. And they're getting this report, essentially blaming it upon the disciples that they stole the body, which is a ludicrous story. The timing of it all is interesting, though. Because if there was going to be anything happen to the disciples in that particular moment, the disciples are already on their way. Isn't it interesting how even in this little small realm of the story, God is orchestrating and sovereignly dictating. The disciples aren't even in town. They're in journeying to Galilee at this moment. Why is it a faith journey? Questions, uncertainties, speculation, wonder. Jesus had died on the cross. He'd been buried and they saw these things and now he's gone. Are they going to operate in faith and walk in obedience to what Jesus said? We read it in Matthew 26. Jesus said, after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. He spoke to them about what would happen at the cross. He spoke to them about how they would respond, the scattering of the flock. And he spoke to them about where he would meet them again after being raised. The journey to Galilee is rooted in faith, belief in what he said. You see, some of you are here today and you find yourself on a similar faith journey. You can't see Jesus. And yet time and again you find yourself encountering him in the pages of his revealed word. His word is convicting you. His word is challenging you. His word is calling you to put these things into practice, to exercise faith. So there's a faith journey, I believe, in many ways. There's a faith journey going on, verse 16. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, we're going to see a mixed response upon seeing the king. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. I want you to think about the journey, what it took to make the journey. And now fast forward to the arrival at the mountain in Galilee. They saw him. They visibly cast their eyes on the one who had just days before been beaten, scourged, and crucified on the cross outside of Jerusalem. They saw the tomb he was placed in. And now they're seeing firsthand the resurrected Christ. What's their response going to be in such a light? The text doesn't leave us guessing. They worshipped him, but some doubted. On the surface, you might be inclined to think that sight would give way to belief. I mean, Thomas, you remember Thomas? He wanted to see Christ before he was going to wholeheartedly believe. And Jesus, appearing to him personally, said in John's Gospel, chapter 20, Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And he goes on to say these words to Thomas. Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. 
You see in this instance, seeing Jesus, putting his hands, he says, touch, look, feel where, where the nail prints are. Thomas believed. But on this day in Matthew 28, having gathered at the mountain in Galilee, having seen Jesus with his own eyes, each of these disciples says they worshipped, but some doubted. Worship, no doubt, is the appropriate response to seeing Jesus, amen? It's the appropriate response. We see it time and again. When they experience the presence of Jesus, they are falling down. When they're in the boat in Luke chapter 5 and they get all those fish, what's Simon Peter's response? Oh, Lord. John, when he's reciting his vision in John chapter 1, when he hears and sees all of these things, what's the text say? He falls at his feet as though dead. Worship is that response. But we see here in the text, doubt, wavering, hesitation. This too, according to the text, is a response at the mountain in Galilee. And, and, and ask the question, who's on this journey? Are not these men the 11 disciples of Jesus? These are disciples. How then could there be wavering and doubt at such a time? How after seeing Jesus could such hesitation occur? Hadn't Jesus been speaking to them about what was going to happen? You see, this is a, church, this is a pivotal verse in the text. Because the very next verse is Jesus addressing this mixed response. He's addressing, he's going to address in verse 18, the mixed response from verse 17. Instead of simply calling them to make disciples of all the nations, there is a need to frame his commissioning statement, I believe. The moment calls for buttressing, building up his charge with foundational truth. His followers were still divided on who he was. Some were having difficulty reconciling what they saw just a few days ago with what they're just now seeing in the present. And you know, church, there's a generation of young people today still doubting, wavering, hesitating on who this Jesus is. In fact, I ran into a couple of them this past week. My mobile office. I couldn't help but overhear. Sometimes when I share these stories at home, Dad, eavesdrop. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm just sitting here at a table, and there's a table right next to me, and some people talk a lot louder than other people do. I happened to hear these two young men, high school young men, and one young man was telling his buddy, the other buddy was just sitting there listening. I, I, I got the idea they had been working on a project, but for some reason they, they brought this up and this young man was talking about how he didn't believe the creation account in the Bible to be true. He did say he thought the Bible was a good read. It was helpful to live a moral life, a good life. He had to leave. He left and I was stirred up on some different things this, this young man was saying. And so I, I was getting ready to leave myself, but the Holy Spirit wasn't going to allow me to leave the building until I addressed something. And so I introduced this young man, goes over and sits in one of those nice comfy chairs, and he gets his, his guy's laptop and puts his headphones in, and I went over, I just tapped him. I said, excuse me. I said, you got a second? So I sat down in the chair next to him, and there's this other guy sitting right over here. You know, there's like four chairs. 
And this other guy, I don't know if he was listening or not, but if he was, praise the Lord. Hopefully he got some good news. And I just started talking. I said, I said, hey, I'm assuming that was a buddy of yours that just left. And he's like, yeah. He's looking at me kind of, who is this guy? <laughs> he did. I, I, it was. It was one of those looks. what I do? Who are you? And I was asking him about Christianity and asking him if he believed what his buddy was telling him was true. And he went on to refer to Christianity as a religion among many and One thing he shared was the difficulty that he had of believing the account of Jesus since it happened so long ago. He had problems with the miracles. He didn't see how Christianity was any different than all the other religions. Lots of things came out in a very short 10-minute conversation. See, there was a lot of doubt. There was a lot of wavering, a lot of hesitation in the life of this young man. He didn't believe who Jesus truly was. He didn't believe in any absolute truth. He didn't believe in the miracles. He didn't see Jesus as the one way to God the Father. He didn't see Jesus as God. And I was there to reassure him. I was there to just simply give him a different story. I wanted him to know that there is another option besides what your buddy just said. Because what's in this word, and I had my word, opened it up and used a couple of scriptures that came to mind as he was talking. And the Lord gave some scriptures to refute some of the falsehood that he had accumulated in his heart and mind over the years. I wanted to let him know this is the truth. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. And we left the conversation. I just urged, pleaded for him to check it out. Check it out. Don't allow a buddy or anybody else to tell you this is the truth. And I praise the Lord that he allowed me to be able to speak to this young man and who knows what will happen as a result of it. But you know, I share the example, church, as a reminder that there are people still today doubting, wavering, on the fence, teetering. What are they going to do with their life? How are they going to live their life? And there are people like that young man's buddy who are speaking falsehood, speaking worldly stuff into the hearts and minds of other people. Listen, if no one speaks the truth, all they're going to hear is the stuff of the world and the garbage that's not true. You've got to speak. It might be uncomfortable. Some of you are sitting in the chairs right now and you're thinking, well, it's easy for you. You're you're an elder. You're a pastor. Let me tell you, it was not easy for me to do that. Everything in my flesh wanted to leave the building, get in my car, and go away. But there is no way I could have gotten in my car and left understanding that the Lord was prompting me to say something to this young man. Church, we've got to be willing to speak. A lot of people doubting today. A lot of people wondering I share share all this with you to remember the commission set forth in the text. There's lots of this doubting, wavering, hesitant, all these kinds of people that you're going to have to encounter. And we need to understand, they all believe something about Jesus. They all have an opinion about Jesus, don't they? The Bible says in Romans chapter 1 that all men are without excuse. All of them. God's word, church, is either true or it's not. Jesus is is either who he says he is or he's a liar. The Great Commission is a charge to those who are followers of Jesus. Disciples, 
to present Jesus in both word, deed, thoughts, actions to those who are in the world. And you know who they are. I mean, Jesus encountered them all the time in the Gospels. People that he met along the road. People that were wrestling with real life questions, wondering how all these things work together. People that were seeking, searching for the truth. Looking for meaning in this life. Trying to reconcile how bad things or trials, how they keep happening if they're such a good God. Have you ever heard that one before? How do you minister to one going through a trial? Are there words of hope? Are there words of life ready to speak? Is his word in you? Look at the next verse, verse 18. Verse 18 is the preamble, if you will, the the precursor to the Great Commission in 19 and 20. And and the Lord has shown me this week how important verses 16, 17, and 18 are to verses 19 and 20. One of the reasons we're spending so much time on 16, 17, and 18, there's a lot here leading up to the commission. Context has once again proven helpful for a greater grasp of his word. So recognizing the mixed response from among his own disciples, Jesus came and he spoke to them. So here we're going to see the authoritative credentials of this king. Verse 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I'd like you to see that verse 18 is not only a precursor to the great commissioning statement of the king, but it is an active response to set right who he is. If these men are going to carry on with making disciples of all the nations. They need to know. They need to be sure. They need to be grounded and rooted and established in who Jesus is. Remember this charge in verses 19 to 20 is not just a way to make disciples. This would be the way to make disciples. Go by faith in the truth. Walk. Walk in not just what you know, but most importantly, walk in who I am and what I have completed in that knowledge of who I am, what I am, what I've completed, and walk in obedience. See, for those who are disciples of Jesus here this morning, some questions need to be asked. Are you confident in Christ? Are you confident this morning? Are you confident in Christ and who he is and what he has done, what he's accomplished for you? Do you believe it to be true? Do you believe it to the point of walking in obedience to what he's commanded you? You see, it's one thing to sit there in a chair and go, yeah, I believe it. It's another thing to say you believe it and put your feet with it and live it. That's the kind of obedience he's talking about. Not assent to, oh, yeah, I believe, yep, 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 yep. That's only a small part of being a disciple. Walking and living And obeying this truth must accompany. Do you believe it to the point of walking by faith and not by sight? Do you believe it in the midst midst of an unbelieving world around you? Do you believe it with your words as you interact with others? Here in the church family or or at the office or or whether you be in the coffee shop or wherever you be. Do you believe it amidst those who are around you? Are you willing to insert the truth of Jesus Christ where it needs to be inserted? For a group of disciples wavering, wondering about the Jesus they saw and the Jesus they're now seeing. A reminder of who's in charge of all things. Who's in control? This authoritative credential comes to light. You see, there is this God-ordained authoritative credential in each of your homes. Did you know that? God has built it into our homes. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. There are times in our home, and maybe this happens in your home as well, 
where things are happening and some of the children are doing some things and, and you know, I'll be wondering, I'll ask a question, why are you, why are you going outside? And, 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 and you may get something like this. Mom said, I, after I got done with my work, I could go outside. Or someone's doing something, they're playing with a toy, and they'd like the other, the other one would like to play with that toy, and then they said, Dad said, you may once I'm all done. Those phrases, Dad said, Mom said. You see, those are authoritative credentials in the home. And when Dad says, Mom says, that's, that's good, that's a good thing. And usually people perk up and then listen. Lord willing, they listen. Dad said. Mom said. I want you to see where this is going as it relates to the text. You see, Jesus is reassuring his disciples of his identity, his power, his authority. This particular authority has been given to him by the Father. All authority, all power has been given to him. And where does his authority reign? The text tells us both in heaven and on earth. You see, the disciples have much yet to learn about heaven, but of earth, the place where they live and they move and they have their being, Jesus declares his authority in heaven and on earth. The king of kings right here is breathing hope, breathing life into them, helping them to see that he is in charge of all things. Now the question comes, how would this make a difference in the days ahead? Oh, this is good. This is an application question. When the religious authorities approach them and tell them to stop preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus, the response is going to be, but Jesus said. But God said. That's the authoritative credential they need. It's the credential that we all need as followers of Jesus. It's the authoritative credential put forth time and again in the book of Acts amidst persecution and opposition. Acts 5.29 They're getting chastised by the authorities and they say, we ought to obey God rather than men. You see, church, we live in a culture that despises authority, don't we? It's pretty easy to see. A culture that despises authority. The resurrected Christ declares here in the text, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I want you to think about how wonderful this is. Think of how this connects to the good news message. So when someone asks you how it's possible for you to go to heaven, how is it possible? You say, simply say, I know the one who holds the authority credential to get in. Access to heaven comes only through what? Through whom? Jesus. Who alone has been granted authority by his father. And when someone asks you how you can cope with such difficult trials that you encounter here on earth, earth how do you respond we ought to say i know the one who holds the authority credential down here on earth you see the same authority in heaven is the one operating here on earth do we understand this yes the evil one is at work here in this world but we also need to understand he himself is under the authority of jesus praise god for that so what difference does this authority credential make How would this help the followers of Jesus in the days ahead? How is it intended to help you today as a follower of Jesus? Look at verses 19 and 20. We have the authoritative commission from the king. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Make disciples. That's the main part of the commission. Let's understand that. Make disciples. Okay? The actual verb would be, if we were to literally say that, disciple the nations. Disciple the nations. That's the imperative in the text. What's an imperative? It's a command. That's the imperative. Make disciples. Remember that the guys gathered at the mountain in Galilee are disciples of Jesus. A disciple, by definition, is a student, a learner. A disciple of Jesus is one who is a student of Jesus or following Jesus. Obedience to what Jesus would have them do. Important to know what a disciple is before you consider making disciples. It's also important to understand what it means to be in Christ. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Our union with Christ. The Bible speaks of two different kinds of people. There are converted and there are unconverted. There are regenerated and unregenerate. There are saved and there are lost. Or as as Paul says in Corinthians 2 and 3, there's the natural man and there's the spiritual man. Right? Let me make clear that Paul, as he continues on in the Corinthians 3, is not advocating a third kind of person. He's not submitting two kinds of Christians, a spiritual man and a carnal man. He speaks of the carnal man church to the shame of the Corinthian church. For too long, disciples have been viewed in similar light as the word saints. To the saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Corinth, to the saints in Rome. Those are believers. And just as the word saint has been misused... And we're out of touch with the word as it's used in the biblical text. I believe we're also out of touch in many ways with the word disciple in the biblical text. Do you know what the post-resurrection idea and understanding of disciple is? It's one who's following Jesus. One who is in Christ. One who has said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And by faith we walk according to the truth. We're going to obey his truth. There is not levels of disciples. Church, I hope we understand this. My concern is that there are some here even today who view being a disciple as an option. It's not. It is not an option. They've been viewed in a very similar light as that of saints. We view saints oftentimes someone who is up here, way up here, way above us. And I can't, that's not, you know. That's terminology for the spiritual elite. I'm not in that class. I'm a believer in Jesus, but... And then I would say, but what? But what? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the text gives us no alternative. We are either two feet in with Jesus, walking down the road with Jesus, or we're out. This is not straddle the line. Church, we've got to wake up to this. Today is the day of salvation. We need to wake up. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed, Romans tells us, Romans 13. A follower of Jesus is intended to look a lot like Jesus. Amen? If we're going to follow him, we ought to to start looking a lot more like him. 
If you're in Christ today, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. You may be a growing disciple. You may be a brand new disciple. You may be a disciple in need of some discipline by God himself. But you're a disciple of Jesus. Oh, the implications of this are are large. Not only for you individually, but they're large from from a preaching, teaching context. If you're in Christ, you are a disciple. So therefore, as elders, we desire and hope to treat you as a follower of Jesus, not treat you as someone less than a disciple of Jesus Christ. There are implications here, church. May I be so bold to say, since you are, if you are here today, a disciple of Jesus, act like a disciple. Be who he's made you to be. You know, if you were to trace through Matthew's gospel, alone, I did this, this is a wonderful exercise and maybe it'd be helpful for you to do it as well. Here's what I found out about following Jesus. And I'm gonna just zip through this. There's a lot here, we could spend a lot of time, but I'm gonna go as quickly as I can. I'm gonna give you the scriptures and you can look them up in your own time. Maybe you can use them with your family later, but I'm gonna give you the, the bullet points. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? I'm just gonna give you Matthew's gospel. And this is by no way exhaustive, but it's a good starter list. Following Jesus is preceded by a call. Matthew chapter 4. You remember Jesus calling the fishermen and they dropped their nets. Following Jesus is preceded by a call. Following Jesus, if you look at the end of chapter 4, and at the end of chapter 4, it's interesting because there are lots of people that are going to Jesus and he's teaching and he's healing and he's preaching. And I'm, I'm drawn to verse 25 and I'm drawn to ask the question, why are you following Jesus? Because in verse 25, great multitudes followed him. They were following him because he was doing all of these things. Just like in John chapter 6, multitudes were following him. Why? Because they got their bellies full. Why are you following this Jesus? Following Jesus targets the heart, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is addressing the heart time and again. He's addressing the heart. Following Jesus may press against your personal comfort zone. This one we go, ouch, this one hurts. This one is is difficult. Foxes and birds have, have place to sleep and stay. But the Son of Man has no place. People say, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. He makes sure that they know what's involved in this. This is going to take you out of your comfort zone. Following Jesus is for sinners only. The story of Matthew himself is wonderful. The writer of this gospel, carried along by the Holy Spirit, Matthew 9, 9 through 13. He goes by the tax collector's booth and Matthew follows. It's for sinners only. In fact, that's why he came, right? Not for those who are already well, but he came for those who are sick, in need of a Savior. Following Jesus leads to suffering and persecution, Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, 16 through 39. He tells them what's going to be happening. Persecutions are coming if you follow Jesus. Following Jesus, Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Following Jesus is lightening your load. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Following Jesus is lightening your load. A lot of people think following Jesus is a bunch of rules I gotta keep. Following Jesus according to the word of God is lightening your load, church. Following Jesus produces good fruit, Matthew chapter 13, one through 23. Parable of the sower. 
says that seed received on the good ground is one who hears the word, understands it, who indeed does what? Bears fruit and produces. A disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus, is to produce fruit. Following Jesus costs everything. Matthew 13, 44 through 46. You remember the parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field and the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. It costs everything. Following Jesus costs everything. Following Jesus demands denying self and taking up a cross, Matthew 16, 24 through 27. If you're interested, desire to fall after Jesus, follow after him, denying self, taking up the cross is the prelude to following him. Following Jesus requires biblical conversion. Matthew 18, 3 and 4. He calls that little child and sets him in his midst and says, Assuredly, I say, unless you are converted. The word there, unless you are changed inwardly. And become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Following Jesus requires a heart for the lost. Matthew 8, verse 10. Take heed that you not despise one of these little ones. Verse 11, the son of man has come to save that which is lost. Following Jesus requires a heart for the lost. Some of you in here, let's just take this, let's apply this. Ask the question. Do you you share the same burden, same heart Christ has for the lost? Or do you see them as, as, as fringe folks, folks you'd just rather not interact with? Following Jesus means that we're gonna have a heart for the lost. This is not an option. Following Jesus means letting go of all other rivals, Matthew 19, 16 through 30. Letting go of all other rivals. Remember the rich young man? What do I still lack? He says, go, sell what you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then he says, come, follow me. Being willing to let go of all other rivals and follow Jesus. Following Jesus does have its rewards. That same chapter in Matthew 19. Peter says, we've left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? And Jesus tells him, in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes. And everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands, that's quite a list, for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Amen. There's reward involved in this. But following Jesus is submitting all of life, as we see here in Matthew 28. It's submitting all of life under his authority. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The commission is to make disciples. What's going to be involved in such a commission? The text provides some clues to unpacking the commission. Go, right? That's the first word, verse 19. Go, get moving. Acts 1, verse 8. Jesus says his disciples are to wait for the power from on high. And once they receive the power from on high, the promised Holy Spirit, they are to be witnesses. Where? First of all in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. The commission here in Matthew 28 begins with movement. Go. Acts 1.8 is an outline of where the gospel is going. Matthew 28.19 speaks to how it's going to get there. Do you see that? Acts 1.8 is an outline of where the gospel is going. Matthew 28.19 speaks to how it's going to get there. His disciples are commanded to go. 
the very nature of the task set before them implies movement. Make disciples is an imperative, a command. But where is the follower of Jesus to make disciples? Of all the nations, of all the people groups. Ta ethne, ethnic groups, people groups. So making disciples then is not confined to your home. We'll talk just a moment about the importance of at least beginning there though. It's not confined just to the church family, not confined to those in your immediate sphere of influence. Making disciples ought to be prioritized within your own home. But the scope of making disciples extends to all the nations. Now, this is significant, not only for you personally, but also contextually. See, Matthew is a Jew writing to Jews about a Jew who's Christ. And yet the gospel of Matthew concludes with the king's authoritative command to make disciples of whom? All the nations, not just the Jewish nation, but all the nations, all people groups. Much could be said about implementing all the nations. Suffice it to say here, there's plenty of work for the follower of Jesus Christ. Amen? Plenty of work. Have you had a small view of this great commission? Does your vision of the great commission align with what the text says? How does the church go about making disciples of all the nations? You know, the elders, one of the things we've been talking about, praying about, we've been considering missionaries to support, praying about how to steward the funds and resources God has given to his church here at Hope in Christ. How can we leverage these for the gospel's sake? You may not be able to go into all the nations yourself, but with what God has given to you in Christ, how can you participate? How can I participate in this? Is there an awareness of the nations, the people groups, the tribes, who are walking in darkness. Go. Not stay. Go. Not remain content with the status quo. Go. With a view to the nations. Remember the, the picture in Revelation 7, 9 and 10. And John says here, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Do you see? There are going to be people in heaven who are going to be a little different than you. They're going to look a little bit different than you, right? But they are going to be the ones also worshiping God, and they are going to be the ones declaring salvation, is, salvation belongs to our God. It's, he's their God too. How's it going to get there? How's it going to go? See, this is, this is God's plan A. And he doesn't have another. I mean, this is the way that, that the gospel is going to move forward. Through his disciples, through his followers. The word's going to go forward. This God that we serve through Jesus Christ is a God of the nations. He's not confined in a family integrated church. Can we just say that? He's not confined in, in, in any man-made de uh, de denomination. He's not confined in that. There are some who hold to that. And that's not what I see in the Bible, church. He's not confined to a political party. He's not confined in the state of Indiana. Nor is he confined solely in these United States of America. And in fact, due to the, the depth of idolatry and sinful living, it's difficult at times to even see evidence of God in this country. He's a God of the nations, God of the people groups, and the charge is to go and make disciples of all the nations. What's involved in this command to make disciples of all the nations? Let's look briefly. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
In baptism, what happens? One identifies himself as a follower of Jesus. So we're helping people come to the point in time. Obviously, God, through the Holy Spirit, is doing this work. But we, as his tools, as his vessels, are helping people, coming alongside people, to the point where they can make confession, proclaim Jesus is Lord. And in making that proclamation, they do so amongst witnesses. And they become baptized. And in baptism, they are identifying themselves in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And it's a declaration that from this point forward, I am going to walk with my Lord. Baptizing them. Identifying themselves. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You see the Father in the scripture. The Father is the one drawing men unto himself. But he does so through the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Who is always about the business of pointing people to the truth of Jesus. Do you see how they're connected together? Teaching them. Teaching them what? Teaching them to observe. Guard. Keep. Hold on to all things that I've commanded you. You know Deuteronomy 6 I know is a well known passage in this church family. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Dad and mom, listen for just a moment. You are called to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Do you know why this is so important to obey? Do you know why? I want to tell you this morning why it's so important. Because if you read the very next verse in Deuteronomy 6, it says, You shall teach them diligently to your children. Part of your God-given ministry is to teach your children. Education has its place. Yes, it does. It can be helpful for employment down the road. But the kind of education I'm speaking of here impacts eternity. Education that reaches the heart. Education that reaches the mind. Education that emphasizes a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Dad and mom, you desire the best for your children. We do. We desire the best things for our children. I pray, though, that we would desire God's best for our children. I pray you desire God's word in your children. The Great Commission involves teaching others to hold on to, to guard all things Christ has commanded. Why is there such a need to hold on and guard these things? If you look around you, I believe it becomes very obvious and evident that it's needed. It's evident pretty quickly that the truths of Jesus Christ are being blotted out in society among us. There, there, there are lots of people today that are wanting to just erase anything and everything that has to do with God. Anything and everything that has to do with Jesus Christ. Let's get rid of it. We need to be upholding this truth, parents, in our homes so that the next generation knows this God whom we serve. What does this word say? Have you ever found that teaching in many regards is most effective? when you know the information that you're trying to convey? Have you ever tried to teach somebody something and you didn't really know what you're doing? Anybody ever been there? You've been assigned or you've been given an opportunity or maybe it's just teaching at home and you just, as a parent, you failed to prepare and you're going through it and you're like, oh boy, this is a mess. And you know you haven't prepared. You know you don't know what you're teaching. When you have that moment, you're like a fish out of water. Huh? It's 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 a bad moment. It really is. You see, the follower of Jesus always has something to teach. There should always be a word ready on the lips to speak. A word of the Lord should be ready in the heart. A reason for his defense awaits. And dad, 
I want to impress this just, just a little bit further, Dad. This great commission is for you to live out. See that you teach them, Dad. Open the word of God to them. Some of you in here may be struggling, may be wondering, how do you do this? How do you do family worship? And you've got all these questions. Let me just say this. Let me make it real simple. I want to make it real clear. Open the word. Read the word. Read them the word. This word has the power to save. Read the word. Share your life with them. Walk with them. Speak often of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Do not neglect this. Guard, as Paul says to Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to your care. Guard it. You know, about right now in the text, in Matthew 28, I imagine that the 11 disciples were wondering how all these things were going to come to pass. They heard what the king commanded. But much like you and me, as we sit here today, probably wondered how such a great commission could be carried out. And Jesus provides a shadow of what's to come at the end of verse 20. Look at it. He says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Observation question. How is it that Jesus would, would be with them always? Wasn't he about to ascend to be back with the Father? Question and answer is yes, he is. But if we look at, Matt, look at, Luke's, at the end of Luke's gospel for just a moment, starting in verse 45. He opened their understanding, chapter 24, verse 45, that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to whom? To all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise, that would be the Holy Spirit, the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power, from on high. Fast forward to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I'll read verse 4, starting being assembled together in Acts 1, verse 4. He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Look at verse 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. John's Gospel, chapter 14, tells us about this ministry and role of the Holy Spirit. The helper whom the Father will send, Jesus says, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. That was true some 2,000 years ago. And church, it's still true today. God is still sending the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. And the Spirit is our greatest teacher available to us. Why? Because he is about one purpose. That one purpose is bringing to your remembrance all things of Christ. His ministry in your life is not only necessary for combating the sin that so easily ensnares, but it's necessary in making disciples. The follower of Jesus must go in the power of the Holy Spirit. You are an effective witness for Jesus insofar as you have the Spirit of God operating in you. You see, the text today began, church, with a faith journey to a mountain in Galilee. But I believe it also ends with a faith journey. You see, those 11 disciples were en route to see the king. As a disciple of Jesus, you are en route to see the king as well, are you not? We await that time. That is, in fact, the hope that you hold on to. That's the anchor which serves, it serves as an anchor. That hope serves as an anchor for your soul as a follower of Jesus. 
You are but a pilgrim along the way, awaiting, as Hebrews says, a better country, a heavenly city. You've been given a mandate from the king of kings to go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all things commanded by Christ. And the helper, the Holy Spirit, is your catalyst for carrying out this commission. And the commission has been entrusted to Christ's church. This is a commission we take part in together, being in Christ. Your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price. The follower of Jesus is deemed an ambassador on Christ's behalf, charged with carrying out a divine commission here on earth that impacts souls for eternity. Do we see this? We've been charged with a commission to be carried out in this lifetime, here on this earth. And it's going to impact souls for all of eternity, church. As a child of the king, you have been authorized. You've been delegated this authority by your master, by your king. For this particular work. So church. Let's be about going. Making disciples. Being a disciple in the process. Understanding that you are in Christ. A disciple. Let's make disciples of all the nations. And realize as we do this work. As we're obedient to carrying out his work for us. We don't do this alone but we do it in the strength and in the power of the Holy Spirit who is operating within us. That's good news. That's wonderful gospel to remember. Let's pray. Father, I praise you for your word. I pray you would give us a heart and a mind, Lord, to be who it is in your word. You've said we already are being in Christ, a disciple, a follower. Pray, Father, that you would help us to see how, how, how grand and vast and large this vision is that you've given, this, this charge to go and make disciples. That as a church, that we're to be about this together. Father, I pray that you'd help us to get our eyes off of ourselves, get our eyes off of just our, our family life. As important as family life is, oh, Father, there is more outside of the walls of our home. Father, I pray that even as family units and as collective family units in this church body that we would be able to minister effectively to those in the world. That we would have the same kind of heart toward those in the world as you yourself had through Jesus while he was here. I pray that as a follower, Lord, you would grant us insight and understanding and wisdom as to how we might best minister to others. I pray, Lord, that each day we're walking with you we're intentional about being a disciple and a follower and being an example to those not only in our home, but to those all around us who are watching and seeing how we do this life being in Christ Jesus. May they see evidence. May they see fruit of one who is truly a follower of Jesus, I pray. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your word. May we take these truths from your word and walk them out by faith. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.